0: All right, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 17, and if you'll join me there, and also join me, silence your noisemaker, if you got one with you, make sure we don't have any live phone calls happening during the service. It always happens when we're on a really good place, teaching some profound doctrine. <laughs> All right, 2 Kings chapter 17, verse 13. In our last lesson... We saw that God testified against Israel. And he was righteous for his testimony against them. And he was also merciful that he even bothered to testify against them. And God has testified against sinful man ever since man became sinful man. But in his mercy, he has always had one way For sinful man to be reconciled to him. One way. Now the remainder of this chapter, if you've been... Are we good back there? Okay. The remainder of this chapter is going to be like a parenthesis during which the narrator speaks in a movie or a play. Perhaps you've seen a movie or a play before where the actors are doing their thing and then there's a break in the action and then you hear the voice of a narrator telling you what's going on or what's about to happen or explaining something. And so we've gone from one king in Israel to a king in Judah, to a king in Israel, to a king in Judah, some evil, most evil, some good. And now we have a pause during which the narrator, and that's the Holy Spirit speaking through the writer of this passage, is going to break the pattern of going from one king to another. And I want you to notice in verse 13, if you're in Second Kings 17, verse 13, that it says, that, Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah. He testified against both. And he is about to tell us about the entire chosen race of the people whom he delivered out of Egypt and led into the Promised Land. All of them. He's stepping back from talking about just Samaria, as in the case here, or just Judah, or Israel... To tell us about all of the children of Israel. And when we learn about all the children of Israel, who are we also learning about? All of us. The Apostle Paul, as God did here in our text, the Apostle Paul testified against the church of Corinth. And the passage I'll read is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, if you'd like to write that down in your notes. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 4, where Paul wrote, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as, as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, For hitherto, that means up to this point, you were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are you able, for ye are yet carnal. He said, I can't teach you strong doctrine because you won't learn the basics. I've tried to teach you the basics, and we're still on the basics because we can't move on because you're not soaking this up, you're not accepting it, you're not learning it. And he testified against the whole church. He said, For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions. They're arguing about the color of the carpet. Are you not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? They had their favorite pastors and teachers in the church. Well, I'm a I'm a Brother Fulton man. Well, I'm a Brother Andy man. Well, I'll tell you what, I like old so-and-so over here better. All of that's carnal. Because who are we, as Paul said? Who's Paul? Who's Apollos? Who's Cephas? We're all ministers of Christ. Our names don't matter. His does. And although Paul had many good things to say to this church at Corinth and to the other churches... And although he commended them for their great faith and their acts of love, he also testified against them when they were teaching or practicing or even tolerating unholiness. And Paul did this out of love and mercy. He wasn't trying to be a hard nose. He loved those people. He established those churches. By God's grace, he established those churches and helped ordain those deacons and elders in those churches and then went on and did it somewhere else and then checked on those churches to see how they did. So when a, a Bible preacher or teacher testifies according to the pattern that God ordained, and that was used by the apostles and the prophets, don't be offended. The world is offended by the preaching of the cross. The Bible plainly tells us that. Jesus was teaching his disciples about how he was the bread that came down from heaven in John chapter 6. And listen to what the disciples, those who followed him, whether followed him because of who he was or because of the miracles he did. And remember, there were many who did that. They just followed him because of the fishes and loaves. They weren't concerned so much about spiritual truth. But listen to what the disciples said after he taught them that he was the bread that came down from heaven. In John chapter 6, verses 60 through 61. Many, therefore, of his disciples... When they had heard this said, this isn't hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, doth this offend you? And the Greek word for offended there is scandalizo, from which we get the word scandal. How about that? Some of the ones who heard Jesus teach that he was the bread of life Thought it was a scandal, and so do most of the people in the world today. They believe the preaching of the cross is a scandal. Just like the lady who posted that our gospel sticky tracks were litter. Remember, she said that's just litter. Her name was Rose, and I hope she's changed her mind about that. To her, the gospel is a scandal. But if we're going to testify the way God did to Israel, the way Jesus did to those around him, the way the apostles did, particularly Paul to the Corinthians, then we can't be afraid of those who call that a scandal. Testify. Be a witness to the truth of God's word. Don't worry about what people call it. And now let's look at how God testified against Israel and Judah. Look back in your text in verse 13. If you've just joined us, we're in 2 Kings 17, verse 13. Yet the Lord testified against Israel and against Judah by all the prophets and by all the seers. Now let's look at the prophets. He said, by all the prophets. A prophet is a spokesman. And in this, in the case of this verse, it's implied that these prophets were God's spokesmen. Because there are false prophets in the world. There have been, there are, and there will be. But we're not to listen to them. Now have you ever wondered, just what is a prophet? I hear that word thrown around, I've heard of Elijah the prophet and... Samuel the prophet, and sometimes we have a mysterious view of prophets, but I'm going to give you four characteristics of a prophet, and they all start with the letter P. That should make it easy for you to take notes. First of all, a prophet is a person. They're flesh and blood, just like you and I are. So that right there ought to take some of the mystery out of what it means to be a prophet. They don't pop out of thin air. They're not supernatural creatures. In fact, in 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 20, 1 Samuel 1 verse 20, Wherefore it came to pass, when the time was come, about after Hannah had conceived, that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord." See there, a prophet is born of woman, just like you and I are. And what that means is the prophet was also a sinner who needed to be saved by the Lamb of God, just like you and I do. Now, second thing about a prophet is a prophet is a prayer, that is, a person who prays, a praying man. Did you know Abraham was a prophet? He sure was. In Genesis chapter 20... He and Sarah had journeyed into the land of Gerar and there was a king there named Abimelech and he put his eyes on Sarah. He said, wow, she's quite a looker. And so when he went to talk to Abraham about her, who is this woman with you? Abraham, instead of saying, that's my wife, sir," he said, oh, that's my sister. He lied. And of course, Abimelech thought he was okay and Took her to be his wife. And he had a dream in Genesis chapter 20. And in verse 7, listen to what God told him. Now therefore, restore the man his wife, for he is a prophet, and he shall pray for thee. And thou shalt live. And if thou restore her not, know thou that thou shalt surely die, thou and all that are thine. So God said, in this case, the prophet Abraham has an assignment. And that's to pray specifically for you, that you don't die. He committed a sin of ignorance. He didn't know that was Abraham's wife. But God said, nevertheless, he's going to pray for you so you don't die. Thirdly, and this is the way most people see a prophet, a prophet is a predictor, a predictor. One who foretells something that will happen before it happens. That's what we normally think of, isn't it? When we think of prophet or the word prophecy, people say, oh, I'm going to go to this prophecy conference. Let me tell you, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. The best prophecy conference you'll ever go to is right here in your own church where we study the Bible verse by verse, and we don't just hone in on what's going to happen in the end times without a clear understanding of the rest of the Bible. If you don't have a clear understanding of the rest of the Bible, you won't understand end-time prophecy. It'll scare you. It'll wow you. It'll make you amused or amazed or something. But you really won't understand it. And so rather than going to some super-duper speaker's prophecy conference, engage in verse-by-verse Bible study day-by-day, week-by-week, and learn the whole Bible concept about that. But a prophet who is a predictor does so because he's divinely inspired by God. He doesn't have some special talent. In fact, what did Moses... Now, you think of somebody who's a speaker at a prophecy conference, the average charlatan out here who's taking people's money and telling them how the world's going to end and when it's going to end. A person like that is quite an orator. They're very persuasive speakers. They can get people nodding their heads within just a few minutes. And after that, they've got them hooked. What about Moses? He was a prophet. Moses couldn't even talk right. In fact, he told the Lord, he said, you want me to do this? I can't even speak. God said, who formed your mouth? And God eventually said, all right, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to make your older brother. I'm going to make Aaron your spokesman. So the prophet who is the predictor is not one who has some natural talent he was born with and God says, well, you're a good speaker, I think I'll use you. In fact, God usually does it the other way around, doesn't he? He uses the base things and the cast-off things and things that are despised to accomplish his will and to do mighty things. Because this prophet cannot know of his own accord, even what will happen in an hour, much less a day, or a week, or a thousand years. Do you remember all the things Elijah told Ahab and Jezebel would happen to them? Every one of those came to pass, didn't they? A prophet is a predictor, and then fourthly, a prophet is a proclaimer, a proclaimer. A proclaimer tells the people what God's word says. Whether it be about things future or things past or things present. In proclaiming, a prophet tells people, he reminds people, first of all, what God has done already. As well as what he will do. In fact, he bases what he will do on what he has done. He doesn't change his pattern. As I did this, as you did this, and these things happen, so shall it be. He doesn't change the the way he operates. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 11 verse 6. Jeremiah 11 verse 6, as Jeremiah wrote, Then the Lord said unto me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear ye the words of this covenant and do them. So in that instance, Jeremiah wasn't telling the people about some distant event in the future. He was exhorting them to obey the covenant that they had been given. God said, proclaim all those words. Now when God testified against Israel and Judah, he was not just telling them about what would happen in the future. He did tell them that, but that wasn't all he was telling them. But just as importantly, and as the basis for what would happen in the future, he reminded them of what happened in the past. And he did that through his prophets and his seers. So when you think of what the prophets were doing in those days that we're reading about, remember, God used them in a very broad sense not just to tell the things that were to come. I want to give you an example here of how important it is to remind people of the past, how important it is and how the Bible establishes a pattern of going back to the beginning and reminding people what God has done so that they may believe he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Let's say I want to teach my five-year-old child not to put her hand on the stove when it's hot. It's been a long time since I've had a five-year-old child, but I do remember. And let's say that when my child was two years old, she put her hand on the hot stove and was burned. And so now she's at the age of five, and I'm wanting to teach her to not touch the hot stove. And I would tell her something like this, When you were two years old, you touched the hot stove, and you probably don't remember it, but it burned your little hand, and you have a scar right here, and you cried. So be sure you don't touch the hot stove, or you'll burn your hand again, and you'll cry, and you'll have another scar. The logic behind that strategy is not very complex, is it? It's something that even a five-year-old child would understand. And yet Israel and Judah were reminded by the prophets about how their unbelieving and disobedient ancestors, their forefathers, suffered the dire consequences of disobeying God's word. They sinned. And the next generation sinned. And those consequences were always the same. God punished them. He delivered them into captivity. When they repented and turned to him, he delivered them from captivity. And they disobeyed him and disobeyed him. And he delivered them into captivity again. The pattern was set. So the same type of sins Judah and Israel are committing now in our text were committed by their forefathers. So reminding them about what God did to their forefathers is not just about telling war stories. It's about trying to get them to see that God never changes and their sins will find them out. It says in our text that God also testified against Israel, look at it, by all the seers, seers, A seer is one who sees. But it's also translated as the word agreement. And in one case, the Hebrew word for seer is actually translated as the word prophets. But in that text, it's a prophet who did not agree with God. Just like a false prophet who does not agree with God now. In that case, Ezekiel 13.9 says this. Ezekiel 13.9 says, where God said, "In mine hand shall be upon the prophets that see vanity, and that divine lies; they shall not be in the assembly of my people, neither shall they be written in the writing of the house of Israel. Neither shall they enter into the land of Israel. And ye shall know that I am the Lord God." So these prophets that we're reading about in our text see or agree with God, not with vanity. God doesn't claim those prophets. However, the seers in our text are very similar to the prophets in our text. So don't get in too much of a wrestling match about the difference between a seer and a prophet. Just know that God used them to testify against all Israel and Judah. Now what was the Lord's testimony against Israel and Judah? through these prophets and these seers. Well, there are four verbs in this verse to which we need to pay attention. The word turn, keep, commanded, and sent. And they're all in verse 13. Now let's look at the first one. The word turn. It's often translated as return And in the garden In the garden of Eden Adam and Eve kept God's commandments until they didn't And I don't know how long that was That's something I'll find out when I get to heaven I'm in the presence of the Lord And I know all things like he did Did God create them and within a day they sinned Did they live a week or two weeks or a year I don't know but I know they, they were in God's will until they weren't. And they turned away from God's commandment. commandment one commandment. Thou shalt not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. That's it. One commandment. They had obeyed it, obeyed it, obeyed it, and then they didn't. They turned away from it. And so that state of blissful, sinless, unbroken fellowship with God was gone. And they couldn't return to it. They had to die. God said they would have to die. So that moment, their bodies begin that process of dying. And in clothing them, God showed them that he would sacrifice these innocent animals to cover them... And one day would sacrifice an innocent Savior to forgive them. He showed them that there was a way to turn back. Because that's our verb in our text is turn or return. God showed them there was a way to return to him. But the way to return wasn't to turn around and say, okay, well, I'm sorry for what I did. I'm going to go back and... Stand in front of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil and I'm going to look at it and I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to eat anything from it and I'm going to come back tomorrow and I'm going to do the same thing. And I'm going to get the score in my favor to where I can stand in front of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil every day for a year and not eat from it to try to overcome that one day I did. That won't work because they've already broken God's law and he didn't say if you keep on eating of it you're going to die he said in the day thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die god fulfilled his promise they broke theirs romans chapter 5 and verse 10 romans 5:10 for if when we were enemies now that's adam and eve right here we were reconciled to god by the death of his son much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Israel and Judah made themselves enemies to God, just like Adam and Eve, just like all mankind since then. But Israel and Judah, when they were one nation, one people, they were, they were the Hebrew children delivered from, from Egypt, and they were at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they promised all that the Lord has said, this we will do. They made a promise. But it was a lie. And in order to turn back to God, the one who delivered them from the physical bondage of slavery, they needed to accept the one who would one day give them, give his life to deliver them from the spiritual bondage of sin. Now, not only the verb turn but also look at the verb keep in our text. It says, he said, turn ye from your evil ways and keep my commandments. The word keep is to observe. It's to regard. Keeping God's commandments isn't about trying to check off a bucket list. It involves a deep, abiding love for everything God says and does, for who he is, for what he's done for us. You know, a criminal may actually keep a certain law in order to keep from being arrested. But until he learns to love the laws of the land and to regard them as good, he can't truly keep them. Until he really believes in his heart, it's wrong to steal from somebody, regardless of what my reason is. It's wrong to kill. It's wrong to tear people's stuff up. It's wrong to hand this poison to these people who get dependent on it and end up dying. It's wrong to do all that. And whether the law says I can do it or not, I don't want to do it anymore. Until that criminal loves righteousness, loves the law... He can't truly keep the law. He doesn't regard it. God's prophets and seers told Israel and Judah, turn you from your evil ways and keep my commandments and my statutes. So by way of deduction here, we learn that not keeping God's commandments is evil. But we also learn that keeping God's commandments is not evil. That's right, it's not evil to keep God's commands. When God says to love thy neighbor as thyself, it's not evil to do that. And when he says to preach the word in season, out of season, to reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine, then it's not evil to preach the word like that. And you're going to be called hateful, and you'll be hated for obeying the Lord. People will not understand why you love God. They'll call you all manner of names, and maybe they have, and it's going to get worse and not better. Israel and Judah did not love God's commandments. They did not keep God's commandments, so their ways were evil. And that's what God said you need to turn back from. Now to the third verb in this verse, the word commanded. Verse 13, the word commanded, it says... According and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers. See how God reaches back to what he gave in the past. This verse tells us plainly that God commanded Israel and Judah by way of the prophets and seers. That is, when they spoke, it was the same as God speaking. When I was a little boy, I had a little brother. And I told him many times, and he told me this too, I don't have to mind you. He'd tell me to do something, I'd say, you're not my boss. I don't have to mind you. And I was right. So if my little brother said, you have to take out the trash, I'd say, no, I don't. I don't have to do what you tell me. But if he said, mom said that you have to take out the trash, Well, that changed things drastically right there. Because now my little brother had invoked someone with authority over me who had given him a message to give me. See, we didn't have cell phones or pagers. We didn't have any of that. We had a landline, and if you were supposed to be home, you better be home to answer it. We didn't even have an answering machine. But when he said, Mom said to take out the trash... Even though he was younger, even though he did not outrank me, my mother sure did. And although my mother didn't tell me face to face or on the phone to take out the trash, her words that were spoken through my brother carried the same authority as if she were standing there in front of me saying, Andy, take out the trash. Now, God didn't say here that the prophets or the seers gave their commandments or gave their interpretation of God's commandments. He said, Keep my commandments and my statutes according to all the law which I commanded your fathers and which I sent to you by my servants, the prophets. You see that? He said, I gave them to you and here's how I did it, by my servants, the prophets. So when they tell you God said this, then that's the same as God literally standing in front of you saying it. Now let's go back to Mount Sinai and relive that scene through the Scriptures. Moses had told the Hebrew children to sanctify themselves against the third day, not come at their wives and all of that. Because God was about to deliver his law to them, although he would use Moses as his representative of the people and Aaron as his priest. In Exodus chapter 19, I'm going to read you verses 16 through 17. Exodus 19, verses 16 through 17. And it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount, and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. And Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. Did you hear that? To meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. They stood back. Now, that verse or that passage captures the reaction of the people to the prospect of meeting God face-to-face, as it were. And the text tells us they trembled. They trembled at the presence of God. They were afraid they would die. And they had agreed to do everything God told them to do. These thunderings and lightnings and the voice of the trumpet were magnificent displays of the might and the terror of the Lord and they expressed his authority in a visible way to his people. Now where was that trembling in Judah and Israel when the prophets told them the same thing God told those people at the mountain where they trembled and said, we'll do what you say, Lord. We're not interested in any of these other gods. We're not interested in the Assyrians or the Egyptians. We're afraid And these prophets and these seers have taken that message and given it to the people straight. Told them to repent or face wrath. So where was that fear in Israel when the seers preached God's warning to them? They had no respect for God's authority, even though his prophets and his seers declared his word. Can you imagine what would have happened had I refused to take out the trash even though my brother told me mom said you have to do it? I can imagine. I would have had to bear my punishment as though she herself had told me to take out the trash and as if I had disobeyed her in person. I wouldn't have been excused from the consequences of disobeying the message she gave my brother to give me by saying, but mom, you never told me to take out the trash, personally. She would have said, yes, I did, when I gave your brother the commandment to give to you. He has done that, but you have disobeyed. So when the prophets and the seers gave Israel and Judah... God's commandments and Israel and Judah disobeyed, they could not be excused by saying, Those prophets and seers have no authority over us. Who are they? Their words came from God, and therefore those words carried the same authority as if they had heard the audible voice of God speaking to them. That's how we, if we see God's word that way, that'll change things for us. We won't say, well, that's a, you know, that that was for then, or that's somebody's interpretation. No, imagine as though God were speaking to you with an audible voice, and He doesn't have to, by the way. He doesn't owe you that. He doesn't owe us anything, but He's been gracious enough to give us His Word that's been preserved down through the ages, and taught by the Lord Jesus Himself, the prophets in the Old Testament, the apostles in the New Testament, and preachers teachers today and disobeying what the prophets commanded was the same as if the hebrew children had disobeyed what god commanded there at the foot of mount sinai if someone says well i would listen to god if i heard him say himself this thing or that thing let's see if that's true in john chapter 14 I love John chapter 14. That's one of the chapters I memorized years ago, and much of it is still stuck with me. John chapter 14, and if you're taking notes, put 14, 9, and then the letter B, little letter B as in boy. That means we're looking at the second or second half of the verse, where Jesus said, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? So Jesus plainly declared to his disciples that he was God, standing there on the earth. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, Colossians 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul wrote to the church, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power. Paul plainly declared that the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God and Son of Man, was God. And there are other verses in the Bible that testify that God was here on earth for all men to see and for all men to hear. And if the people in those days believed that this Jesus was the same one who showed his might in the lightning and the thunder and the voice of the trumpets at Mount Sinai, they would have fallen on their faces and trembled in fear. So what kept them from it? Luke chapter 5, verse 21. Luke chapter 5, verse 21. These scribes and Pharisees have God in the flesh standing in front of them. And it says, And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, Who is this which speaketh blasphemies? Talking about Jesus. Who can forgive sins but God alone? and in John 5:18 John 5:18 therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him that is Jesus because he had not only broken the sabbath but said also that god was his father making himself equal with god so all of those passages there show us that even though god himself came to this earth In the person of Jesus Christ, who was fully God and fully man, that the people in those days, the unbelievers, denied that he was God. And if they can deny that he was God, then they can say, therefore, we don't have to believe the words that he said. We don't have to believe the words he spoke were God's words. And in John chapter 5, verses 46 through 47... John chapter 5, verses 46, 46 through 47. These are Jesus' words too. For had ye believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if ye believe not his writings, how shall ye believe my words? How about that? In the days of the kings of Israel and Judah... In the days when Jesus dwelt on the earth, and in the days since he went up to be with his father, unbelievers have not trembled at the word of God. Unbelievers have justified all their wicked acts by denying that the prophet spoke God's word, by denying that Jesus was God, by denying that Jesus spoke God's words, and by denying that faithful pastors and teachers have preached God's word. They just deny it. They said, no, that's not true. I don't have to believe that. Who are you, brother Andy? You're a, you're a hypocrite. You're a sinner. Are you not any better than I am? And that's what they use to justify their unbelief. The word the unbeliever obeys is the one that he thinks is best for him in his own judgment, which, by the way, changes from day to day. He doesn't want to be held to any absolute truth, especially if it's inconvenient. In fact, you know, Al Gore wrote that silly book, "An Inconvenient Truth." That's actually a better name for the Bible in the eyes of the unbeliever. is an inconvenient truth, because it is inconvenient for them. The unbeliever scoffs at truth. He scoffs at the Lord Jesus, and about the most an unbeliever will give Jesus is, well, he was a good man. But then they ridicule him in their movies and their plays, which usually portray him as a hippie or a homosexual or a womanizer. Now that's blasphemy. We've looked at the verbs turn, keep, and commanded. Now let's look at the last verb in verse 13, and that's the word sent. Sent. In Genesis 19, verse 13 in the scene where Sodom and Gomorrah were about to be destroyed, Genesis 19:13, the angels of the Lord, those two messengers, did not just happen to wander through Sodom and recommend that God do away with it because it was so wicked. In fact, in that verse, those angels said, For we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxen great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord hath sent us to destroy it. In Numbers 21, 6, Numbers 21, 6, the murmuring children of Israel did not just happen to wander into a snake pit. They didn't go to Sweetwater during the rattlesnake roundup and just happen to get bit by a bunch of snakes. Y'all, not from West Texas, you won't understand that. I'm a naturalized East Texan, by the way. I was born a West Texan. But that verse said, and the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and much people of israel died and in his prayer to his heavenly father in john chapter 17 jesus said as thou hast sent me into the world even so have i also sent them that's his disciples into the world jesus didn't just happen to be born And happened to live a perfect life, and then randomly choose to die for the sins of the people, he was sent, and he sent us, and this is how God does His business. So, when as we close, when it comes to God's testimony against Israel and Judah, he testified that the laws and the statutes. He commanded their fathers were sent to you by my servants, the prophets. God's servants and prophets didn't just happen to check out a library book one day and say, wow, that's interesting. That covers a lot of history and there are a lot of miraculous things in there. Wow, we need to tell the people about this. No, God sent them. And the preaching of God's word has never been by chance. It's never been by the carnal choice of man in his self-righteousness. God sent his word by the prophets, by the seers, by his son, his apostles, and by us today who are his witnesses. Let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, thank you for the good attention of those who came today and those who tuned in online. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to learn the many truths that have been spoken from your word today, that we would not forget them. And Lord, if we don't remember the exact words, but that we would remember that you testify your word through those whom you have sent, and that we're expected to obey it as long as it is the word that you sent through those whom you sent. And I pray you'd help us to do that by faith in Jesus' name. Amen.